Welcome along to this latest Fraser Valander podcast. My name is Graham Roy and I'm joined today by Mary Spowage and also our good friend Dr Jim Walker. Jim is Chief Economist with Aletheia Capital, an independent advisory firm based in Asia. Jim moved to Hong Kong in 1990 and is a highly regarded expert in Asian markets as well as the global economy more generally. And prior to that, he was an economist with the Royal Bank of Scotland, um, but most importantly, uh, he used to work in the Fraser Allender Institute uh, many moons ago. Um, for his sins, he's a passionate Greenwich Morton supporter, and for a while we thought about having a discussion about league reconstruction in Scotland. But between me, a Thistle supporter, and my colleague Mary Spowage, who's an Alawa supporter, it probably wouldn't be the most meaningful conversation. So we thought instead that we'd focus upon the global economy and the impact of the coronavirus. So Jim, if I could maybe kick off by steering you away from thoughts of Capelo um, and look at the current situation. You've been looking at the global economy for many years now and you've seen it firsthand any past crises, both financial and economic. Have you seen anything like this that we're seeing at the moment? I mean, the, the first thing to say, Graham, is that the global economy is in worse shape than Morton have ever been, and that really is saying something. But, uh, you know, this is a very different crisis from things that we've seen in the past. I suppose the, the, uh, the parallel with Hong Kong in 2003, when we had the SARS crisis, uh, is something that springs to mind, certainly in terms of the, the, the way that people have reacted to the, the uh, the actual virus being around. But, you know, that was a very confined case um, in southern China uh, and eventually in Hong Kong. Uh, people were pretty much in quarantine here for a, a few weeks and months. And then it passed and it never came back. And it was actually not that difficult that uh, we, we got over it. Um, things had changed during the, 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 the period of the virus uh, being around, but uh, very quickly they go back to normal. I think this is going to be very different. Uh, as regards other big crises like the Asian crisis and the, uh, the, the 2009 financial sector meltdown, they, they, they were very different. They were really, I think, much more predictable given the way that uh, uh, the economies had been uh, responding to policy in both of those crises. Uh, this is just out of left field, so it's totally different. And when you're looking at um, the countries around, you know, particularly markets that you look at on, on a day-to-day -day basis, where's, where's your sense on where, you know, the Asian market, the Asian economies are at the moment? Because um, they seem to be in slightly different stages to where we are uh, over here in, in Europe. Yeah, they're in different stages, Graham. but to be quite honest, they're all as much in the dark about how they're going to come out the other side of this as any Western country, whether it's the UK, the US or anybody else in Europe. China, though, I suppose, is the one that we can concentrate on a wee bit in that, of course, it was the first country to go into lockdown and was the first country to come out of lockdown. And all of the intelligence that we're getting at the moment is that uh, basically activity is back up and running in China. I mean, you need to be a wee bit careful when you're uh, dealing with official figures in China, but uh, uh, Xinhua have reported that 99% uh, of large companies are back operating with about 90% of their workforces back. 
uh, and around 77% of small and medium-sized enterprises are back up and running as well. Now, that, that's certainly true, and we've seen that in a big, big rebound in Chinese industrial production in March um, after a fall-off in February. But the problem is that their export markets are now melting away like uh, snow in June, uh, if it ever fell then. Um, and uh, as a result of that, the, the probability of another dip down for Chinese economic activity, I think, is exceptionally high. Elsewhere, I mean, some countries have handled the, the, the crisis in, the, in terms of the virus really pretty well. Um, I think people are pointing to Korea and to a certain extent Hong Kong, where you know, that there have been four deaths here, and that's been the same for the last six weeks. Uh, it's, it really is quite a remarkable, jo remarkable job they've done here, and it's a very different job from elsewhere, but still pounded by the economic impact. Uh, and I think that's going to be true right across the region. You know, the IMF have just come out, as you probably know, with the World Economic Outlook. Um, and they, they've been looking at the various countries across the world, including some of the, the, the Asian region. Um, China, they, they've got in the, growing at around about 1.2% this year. Um, I, I think it might actually be a wee bit faster than that, but not much. Um, for other countries, for example, Thailand, they're at minus 6.7. That's almost as bad as it was at the height of the Asian crisis. Uh, and for a few others, pretty negative as well. The one that worries me most, I've got to say, in terms of the IMF's outlook is India, uh, where they, they, they're forecasting 1.9% growth this year. And I think they've just got the sign wrong in that one. So it's a mixed bag. And when you when you look at these different countries and you mention the differences in performance and the outlook, I mean, is that is that driven by economics, so their structure of their economy, or more about the policy responses and the way they've handled the the crisis? I'm just conscious that even your experience coming backwards and forwards and traveling around countries, you must be seeing a different response. So Hong Kong have done things quite differently from 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 other places. And is that a, is that a driver of some of these differences you're seeing? Uh, to a certain extent, uh, Graham, but, you know, Hong Kong started off with a, a, I would say, a kind of mixed bag response. The, the first thing that they started to do was talk about uh, giving everybody in the, the country $10,000 as a, effectively a, a tax handback, uh, uh, a giveaway, um, without actually understanding that they were, uh, they were closing, in the middle of closing down a lot of the economy and, quite honestly, boosting demand in the sense of aggregate demand in that instance is really completely the wrong report, uh, wrong approach to this whole crisis. So they got off on the wrong foot, but they've actually uh, got back on track quite, uh, quite neatly. Um, they've now got wage support programs and a lot of uh, help going to businesses. And through the region, you're seeing more of that uh, appearing. It's got to be said that in a lot of the, the more emerging countries, places like Thailand, Philippines, Indonesia, they don't have very much scope to do the, the, the kind of things that you would hope that, that might happen in terms of wage support, um, business tax relief, rates relief, just because they don't have the information and they have big informal economies that that doesn't work very well in. China will be the one that you'll see the biggest impact, though, from a, a policy perspective, because given that it's a relatively closed economy, they, they still can do quite a bit on the fiscal front that other countries can't do, and it doesn't leak out, um, and they've got the, 
the kind of people in place where a fiscal infrastructure programme can actually work to, uh, to raise economic activity, raise demand and raise effectively the supply response as well. Yeah. So China, you'll see the biggest response elsewhere. It's again, as I say, said earlier, a mixed bag. And, and Mario will come on to maybe ask a couple of questions about the, the policy response. I guess one final thing for me, which is, you know, just, just chatting with you before and your various insights and you've, you've made the point about the differences between types of countries. So what's happening in Asia, what's happening in the um, uh, kind of Western or European and North American countries. But one of the things which been struck by your comments and it's not something we've really seen too much discussed over here about the impacts on developing countries and the ability for them for their economy to be to cope with the with the with the response to the to the virus so in in the uk you know not saying it's easy but you can see a system whereby you can socially distance and furlough companies and shut down large parts of your company your country to try and to try and you know isolate the virus and contain it but in developing countries, that's simply not possible. And so it would be useful maybe to get your reflections on, on that part of it and what you see the potential implications of that. Yeah, basically what we've tried to do with our clients is, is suggest to them that the way they should think about this crisis is very different, for example, from all the war rhetoric that you tend to get from politicians where they're fighting the battle and they're deploying the troops and et cetera, et cetera. What we've tried to say to, to our clients is that this is exactly the opposite of a war economy. It's a silent economy uh, where effectively the, the economy has been put into hibernation, although it's a government mandated hibernation. And while people are, um, I suppose, complying with that in a lot of Western countries and in some of the, the, the more developed emerging markets in places like Asia and even China, and are able to do that because governments have a relatively good records of where people are, what the businesses are, how to get money to them, there are uh, defined channels. So we can put up with the silent economy in, in our countries uh, and to a large extent government can alleviate the problems that emerge from that uh, by just transferring money. What, what we were trying to say about some of the emerging markets and in particular the, the, the the smaller ones in the sense of GDP smaller uh, or GDP per capita smaller is that they really don't have the choice of locking down their economies because uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the addressing the virus in that way, the, the cure is worse than the virus itself. If you lock down a lot of emerging economies for three weeks, the, the, the number of people that will starve at home is much higher than the toll the virus would take. And that's literally true because they live hand to mouth, they make their money every day uh, in whatever exchange and production that they undertake. Um, they buy their food every day and that's how they survive. Uh, three weeks at home isn't an option for them, let alone six weeks at home. So the, the, the silent economy approach, I'm afraid, in a lot of developing countries is purely murder. Uh, it's not a, a viable option. So you're going to see a lot of countries, especially in the emerging market universe, that will just need to keep working and try and work their way through the virus from the kind of herd immunity perspective. 
Jimmy, you've talked a lot about the, the policy response and the fact that um, Hong Kong and China are at different stages in this mm. pandemic than, than the UK is at the moment. And a lot of people are interested in talking to us about whether the UK have got it right here, whether this has been the right thing to do, if the scale of the lockdown is correct, if it's going to work out as the mm. best way to have handled things. Um, and we're sort of saying, well, it's too early to say and we'll all look back on this and probably pick the best countries who've responded in the best way after a few years when we actually see what the, the overall impact has been. I mean, given where you are um, in Hong Kong and, and what you're seeing in China and other countries in Asia, what do you think the UK maybe does have to learn about seeing you know, where, where those countries are in terms of the policy response that they've in place? I think it's quite interesting, Mary, because if anything, I would say that right at the start of the crisis, everybody went off on the usual um, macroeconomic responses that we've seen to recessions in the past, to um, just the economic slowdowns that have come even as a result of a shock like the oil shock, the oil price shock in the 1970s. Um, but more the, the, the types of recessions that we've seen through 2000, 2009, and even in the Asian crisis, where there was a, a, a legitimate case for saying that by adding aggregate demand, you, you would help pull the economy through this. But I think that very quickly people have become, begun to realise that when you do have this government-mandated shutdown, the, the, the one thing that happens is that companies can't survive, they can't make any money. Uh, at all because they've been told to close. So what you've got to do is structure the response so that you're supporting business rather than supporting, in the first instance, the consumer. Um, by supporting business, what you hope you're going to do through the course of that is keep people employed and at least getting uh, a percentage of their wages. And I think it's taken a bit of time, but actually a lot of the responses, including the UK's now, is actually edging in that correct direction. We, we see um, uh, announcements about the support for small businesses, support for um, companies, rates relief. Uh, what they're actually going to have to do is also restructure debt and uh, hold off on interest payments, that's for sure as well. Um, but uh, this is at least getting into the, the I think the psyche of government thinking, not just in the UK, Australia has done a big package uh, in terms of employment support and uh, salary support. Hong Kong's doing it here now. Um, the United States has actually moved in that direction as well. So they're getting there. Uh, and I think realizing that this is a very different type of response that's required in this crisis. Uh, China will do things very much in its own kind of style. Um, yeah. it, it has a, a much easier way of it in terms of effectively telling the banking system don't foreclose on anybody, don't let anybody go bust and that's essentially what they've been doing uh, for the, the, the last six, eight weeks um, and that's, that's the, the benefit of being owned by one person who happens to be the president of the country and I suppose it's a, a very different uh, uh, environment when you're you're working in the West with yeah. uh, with a, a, a private banking system or a private system altogether. Um, so with with that in place, China will uh, have saved a lot of its companies, even if they're not making any money, uh, and are ready to start up again. And now what they'll face is a, a big government injection in the fiscal front. 
Uh, so just a, a normal policy response from China. And that will work, but it'll only be within China as their export yeah. markets disappear. And, you know, a lot of focus has been on the sort of fiscal measures that the government has been announcing, particularly, well, for us in the UK anyway, you know, it's a continual package of different measures as, as different <laughs> people say we're not covered by it, um, so they announced something else. But I, we wondered what your view was on the kind of um, the monetary policy responses that you've seen in different countries um, across the world. You mean apart from despair, Mari? Um, because, I, I mean, I've despaired of the monetary responses since 2009. Uh, when you run interest rates down to zero, I think you send exceptionally bad signals to the business community about the cost of capital and about what kind of businesses should actually be in business when you can get relatively free money. Uh, and now as we've lowered interest rates even further and sometimes towards, well, sometimes into negative territory as we've got in Europe and Japan at the moment, all we do with that is we uh, effectively, I think, close down the, the, the creative part of the, the winds of creative destruction. Um, you also close down the destructive part, which uh, then reduces profitability in the economy generally. Uh, and I think that's exceptionally bad news. The policy responses so far, in my, my view, from the monetary side, although they've supported the financial system, and of course that's what they're mainly designed to do, uh, have done untold damage to the, the real economies and effectively to the, the savings investment balance in economies. And that's true almost the world over. Emerging markets less so, where there, there are at least still positive interest rates in most countries. And one of the things, Jim, looking to the future is that it's, um, as, as typical as economists we would do, we, we, we sit back in this crisis and, and uh, we look to imagining a better future and how things will be different and talk of a new normal and how everything will be um, much better and we'll live in a much fairer and more prosperous economy that will be transition to low carbon and things like that and yet it's easy for us to imagine and that's not to decry that anyway and part of I think what we need to do is obviously learn the lessons um, from that but equally there needs to be a bit of realism in all of this as well and the various pressures that will emerge once we start to navigate our way through this. I mean from a, from a global perspective what do you see as being the big, the big implications of this pandemic once we get through the other side hopefully as safely as possible as, you know, what do you see as being the big, the big issues for the global economy over the next five to ten years as a result of what we've had uh, of, of this crisis? You know, I, I think the biggest danger um, with, with that question, uh, Graham, and the response to it is that we, we all just overlay our own personal philosophies and uh, outlook in life uh, in the hope that that's what's going to happen uh, going forward. I mean, as somebody that comes a bit from the Austrian tradition in economics, I, I always hope that th this crisis might mean the end of central banking uh, and that we'll actually get back to the market determining interest rates rather than uh, politicians and bankers, central bankers in particular, uh, but it never happens. And while I would like to see um, much more in the way of resources piled into things like the, the health service and, uh, and, and other social care, rather than uh, into war machines and nuclear weapons, it's probably just not going to happen. Um, 
And if we look at every other crisis in history, with the exception probably really of the, the Second World War, where there was a period of, of maybe five years after the Second World War, the, the post-war government, where real social change did take place. The unfortunate thing is that in most instances, we just get back up and running and back to the, uh, the, the status quo ante pretty quickly. Uh, and I think it really takes a concerted effort on the part of both politicians and voters to move you in a very different direction. I would say, and this is again a personal view and maybe a philosophical one or a, uh, an ideological one as well, when I look around the world at the kind of politicians that are in place just now, I've got absolutely zero confidence that anything will change almost anywhere. Great, that's probably a really great place to finish that podcast and something we can pick up in the next one with you, Jim, um, and get your insights on on what might happen into the future when when elections take place. And there's a couple of big ones uh, this year and next, both locally and also internationally that we need to keep an eye on. It'll be fascinating to see the results. Jim, it's been great talking with you. Um, stay safe in Hong Kong and we look forward to seeing you back in Scotland sometime hopefully in the very near future. Thanks guys, and you stay safe as well.